Hey, glad to have you listening to this Coffee and Pens podcast episode with myself, Kiel van der Vivere, and our guest author, Ben Guest. This is our first milestone. It's episode number 10. And just like last time, this conversation spans across three continents. I recorded this from Bolivia. Ben Guest was all the way over in New York, but we talked about his new book, Zen and the Art of Basketball Coaching, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey. Stay tuned for one of the best conversations about writing I've ever had. Hey Ben, how's it going? Great, thanks for having me on, Kiel. No, it's a pleasure. So you wrote uh, two books, Beating Vegas, and then you're almost publishing a new one, Zen and the Art of Basketball Coaching. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, yeah. Amazing. Can you tell me a little bit about your books? Sure. The first one is a very niche book. So after I was a university lecturer and during the pandemic, wasn't comfortable with the protocols that my university had. So I resigned and I was brainstorming, well, how can I make money during the pandemic without working, without having to go into an office or a school or organization? And there was a, a university professor who I was familiar with, who'd done a study years ago in the early 2000s about basketball players and their proficiency. And I thought, what if we could take that and use that to predict performance and predict how players are going to perform in season? And then if you can predict performance, well, what could you do with that information? You could offer picks and wager on the outcomes of games. So beating Vegas is about sort of this journey I took of really almost becoming an entrepreneur and creating a very niche newsletter that offers NBA spread bets. And I started that in February and in May took on two partners and we're recording this in October and the year to date ROI is about 36%. So it's, it's been an interesting experiment. We'll see if it continues. But my first book was just a very short niche book about that experience. And then the second book, which I just published, is Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey. And it's about my experience coaching basketball in Namibia. I'm from the US, but I lived in Namibia for for several years. And it's really about how things like mindfulness meditation and camaraderie can help any team or even any organization perform better. It's about what do we do? What can we do to perform at our best? Okay, thank you. Yeah, I read both books and I was disappointed with the first one because it was very short. That's the only thing. And then I read Mm -hmm. the second one and it made me very excited for this interview because I learned that we have many things in common. We've both been English teachers uh, you've coached basketball, I've coached soccer or football, and we are both kind of expats, although you're back in, in the US now. The first thing I want to ask is, how do these different experiences affect you as a writer? Mm, it's a great question. So writing is interesting, as, as you well know, because it's a solitary experience for the most part, especially early on before you feel comfortable showing your your work or your draft to anybody else. And also as an aside, just with the writing process, I think those moments when you're first 
starting a project, writing your first few pages, your first few chapters, I think it makes sense, at least for me it does, to keep that very contained, not to talk about it with people, not to share it, because it's a really fragile moment. And the wrong kind of feedback at that moment or a negative comment or anything like that can really affect you. Or conversely, maybe you're going to decide this isn't the, the right project and, and stop. And that's okay too. But if you've already told a bunch of people about it, then you're worried about how it's going to look and so on and so forth. So I think I'm working on a book right now with a, a retired NBA player. And we're about halfway through the first draft, more than halfway through. And it's only now that I even feel comfortable saying that. And, and I told the players, okay, we can start talking about it. You can start telling people about it now. Not, not that we're out there promoting or anything, but just for in, in an artistic or creative endeavor, there's a moment um, early on where you just want to keep it contained. And with writing, that mo those moments can be solitary because it's just you and your brain, you know, you're just in your head. And so I think one of the keys, in, strangely, it, paradoxically, to being good at that is you have to you have to have some material to draw on. So you have to be out in the world living life. You can't just be in your room or in your office or in the coffee shop writing 12 months out of the year. Yeah, You have to go experience the world and then that's gonna give you experiences from which to draw on when you sit down and begin to write. Yeah. That's... So, it, so, so the, the, the experience, you know, it's really the having those experiences to then step back and say, hmm, maybe other people will be interested, like yourself would be interested or your listeners would be interested in reading about this. I think Steve Jobs said, you only connect the dots in your life when you look back. So when you're in the middle of an mm -hmm. experience, you don't know, is this gonna be a defining moment in your life or a pivotal moment, or would this make a good story or a good book? It's only afterwards that you, you can assess that. So, um, Oftentimes when they're when in the middle of something, you're just experiencing whatever it is you're doing or what's happening. And it's only later you you say, okay, well, I think I should take that experience and make it make it a book. Yeah. Yeah. So you took those experiences and you wrote a memoir. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with that idea? It's interesting. So I had this incredible experience coaching a high school basketball team in Namibia. And we lost in the championship game. We were undefeated all the way until the championship game. We lost by six points. We were up three. No, no, sorry. We were up six. We lost by four points. We were up six with six minutes left in the game. We lost by four points. So it was a really heartbreaking moment. And the following season, we had six seniors the six seniors and a couple of the other guys, we started our own professional team in, in Namibia's professional league and had an incredible experience, um, almost like a movie story experience. And so that, um, I'd had that experience. And I remember thinking, not that it would make a great book, but afterwards thinking it would make a great movie. I was like, this is unbelievable what just happened. Uh, to, to spoil to spoil my own book we we were 500 during the regular season which you can imagine because it's a bunch of teenagers in a men's professional league FIBA certified league 
and we barely made the playoffs. And then in the playoffs, we went on this magical Cinderella run and we won the championship. It was the biggest upset in the history of the league. And so afterwards, you're like, whoa, that would make a good movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then when the pandemic hit and I resigned from my, from my teaching job, then I was like, well, maybe I should take that story and write a book, um, write a memoir about it and see what that experience was like. And it was, it was an enjoyable experience. And I was lucky because during the season, I had been sending weekly emails to family and friends. So I sort of had a real-time journal that I could draw on for, for some of the material. Awesome. This was definitely very useful. Did you start writing that, that with the idea in mind of maybe I can draw from this later on? No, actually the newsletter, it was, to, to, it was fun to just kind of keep people back home updated with what I was doing. And then I knew also I was going to do a fundraiser. So I think in the fir- very first email I sent, I said, hey, just a heads up, you're going to get this newsletter and read about my experiences. In about two months, I'm going to ask you to donate some money to help buy the team shoes or uniforms or what have you. So it, it was to keep my friends and family updated and also to sort of prep for a, for a fundraiser that I ended up doing each year. Oh, okay. Um, so how do you decide what goes in the memoir and what doesn't? Uh, that's the key, right? Um, because I think the trick to most good art, not just um, not just books, not just writing, but painting, film, acting, performance, all of it, it's as much as what you leave out as what you put in, right? Maybe mm-hmm. even more what you leave out yeah. than as to what you put in. So I wrote a very bare bones first draft and I showed it to a good friend of mine and she gave me good feedback. And she said, you need more, you need more about this. You need more about the players. You need more about yourself. So I put that in. And then one of the best decisions I made is I hired a professional editor and just, I think one of the things that's important for authors to do is kind of demystify some of the process. And part of a lot of times what people don't talk about is the money side of it. Yeah. So just so your your listeners know, I spent a thousand dollars, thousand US, on uh, I hired a professional editor, um, and then also just to break down the costs of the book completely, I paid five hundred dollars for a copy edit, and then I designed the cover myself using Canva, but for my first book, I paid uh, a designer on Fiverr. I think I paid one hundred and fifty dollars for my cover. So my first book, it was just a copy edit and a cover, so it was about maybe $600. And then this book, it's $1,000 for the professional editor that I engaged mm-hmm. and $500 for the copy edit. So $1,500 um, to then self-publish the book. And, and if people are interested in sort of the ins and outs of self-publishing and things like cover design and advanced reviews, Amazon, um, all of that promoting, I, I have a newsletter, a free newsletter where I do weekly posts and interviews and that's at benbo.substack.com. So I engaged a professional editor and then he was wonderful because it was like working, it's like having a personalized masterclass in storytelling. And he, he's been a sports editor for 40 years. So he's worked with every big name you can imagine and published a number of books, written a number of books. 
And so to have his feedback kind of draft by draft was invaluable. So I would write a draft, send it to him in Word. He'd send it back a few days later with comment, a ton of comments. I'd read it, sit with it for a day or two, and then we'd talk on the phone for an hour, two hours, and go through everything. And that was just having a personalized masterclass in, in writing. And so that was really helpful. And the feedback was similar to my friend. It's just, it needs more detail. It needs more detail. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of two ways you can do this, right? You can just write, you can put everything on the page and then start taking things out, or you can just make it bare bones and start filling in. And so I did it. Um, I mean, you mentioned my first book, you thought it was too short. So it was kind of the similar kind of feedback with the memoirs, like it needs more, it needs more. Yeah. So I just kept filling in and filling in. Okay. Yeah, that makes to me, that makes more sense because then you restrict yourself to adding information where people want more information because it's probably easier mm -hmm. to add information and to start cutting because of what needs to be cut and then maybe you can cut too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you, you know, there are many different paths up the mountain and part of it is I'm, I'm explaining what works for me. I think a lot of times, especially for writers starting out, they can talk to veterans or just people giving advice and they'll say, you need to do this and you need to do that. Well, no, that's what works for that person. This is what works for me. Uh, so especially to, to writers starting out or aspiring writers who are listening, you, it's an, I think it's helpful to hear about the processes different people use, but you also have to be cognizant you're going to have your own process and it may not look like somebody else's and that's okay. There's many different paths up this mountain. Yeah. It's funny you say so today in my daily newsletter, I just wrote something about that. I believe there are two kinds of like writing advice. There's like the contradictory advice, which is I think the easiest one to deal with because one group of writers will say, this is what you need to do. And the other group of writers will say, this is what you need to do. So you like experiment with both and you pick your way. And it's easy. But then there's the mainstream advice where everyone says you need to write first, edit later. Like 95% of writers says this is how it works. But if that's different for you, like if you're the 5% that thinks, you know what, I write and edit at the same time, it makes you feel really bad about yourself because that's not how others do it. Right. right. And that's what we want to avoid. Exactly. And, and actually, it's funny you mentioned that because the memoir. Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball. That was, um, I'm going to sit down and write 3,000, 4,000 words a day. Just get it all out. And then when I finish the first draft, even though it's bare bones, I'm going to go back and edit, right? So it's write and then edit. With this current book where I'm working with a, a retired NBA player on, on his memoir, I'm writing and editing at the same time. I'll write then I'll go back and read through it. Or if it's the next day and I want to get back into his voice, I'll read through it and make some edits. So it's not only, you know, Kiel um, writes and then edits and Ben writes and edits as he goes. It can be Kiel, you know, on project A writes and then edits. And on project B, he, he writes and edits at the same time. And project C, he does something, you know, he, he records, yeah. he transcribes it or whatever. So you can use different um, tools and different, processes for different projects even though you're the same person yeah definitely and in fact the, the one of the very best pieces of advice that the professional editor who i use his name is glenn stout 
he, Glenn gave me a great piece of advice once. He said, the story will tell you how it wants to be told. Meaning, you know, so it's like, should I do a flashback? Should I just do it chronologically? Should I do this, that, you know, should I do excerpts from journals? And in the process of writing your story out, the story is going to speak to you. And the story, the story is going to tell you how it wants to be told. And, and there's a part of writing that's technical and there's a part of writing that's just uh, ephemeral. And that, that's the, create, the creative side. And so I found a lot of wisdom in that, that advice. The story will tell you how it wants to be told. Yeah. The author from my previous interview, uh, her name is Michaeline Duclef. She told me exactly the same thing. Like she said, sometimes I need to write myself into the chapter. So she said, like, I'd go on for sometimes even up to 4,000 words until I realized, oh, this is what this chapter is about. Like, this is the angle for this chapter. So the, the lesson there is just to write, write, write until you find the perspective of the story, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and kind of going back to what you were saying earlier of, you know, somebody feels shame if, if they're being told they're doing it wrong. It's okay to try things. And then if it doesn't work, just take them out. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you have to try a lot of different things to see what's going to work for this particular project. Yeah, definitely. Um, so going back to the memoir now, one more question I had about that. What do you do yeah. when your memory is a bit vague? Oh, that's a great question. So I mentioned these emails, these weekly emails I had mm-hmm. sent back to family and friends. If I didn't have those, I don't think I could have done the memoir, or I certainly couldn't have done it as it currently is, because a lot of it is is scenes, scenes with actual dialogue. And that's because the day it happened or the, the next day, I had sat down and written out what happened in these emails. Now, the emails were present tense and just in the moment. And this is obviously looking back on something that's already happened, past tense. So I had to change a lot of it. But I, at least I had the actual day this happened, where it was, who said what. So that was really helpful for a chunk of it. And then th- there's a part of the memoir that takes place when I'm younger. Mm-hmm. And I found some journals that I kept during that time period. And so it was the same thing. I'd literally, literally written down what I said, what the other person said, so I could make scenes out of that dialogue. So I didn't have to rely just on memory and then trying to recreate who said what and where were we and da, 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 da. So that was really helpful without having those journals and those emails. I don't think I could have, could have done the memoir. Yeah. Did you only use things that you had written down? Yeah. For some parts of the story, I I did have to recall. And so there's one scene where I'm working in the public, the public affairs office of Johns Hopkins hospital in Baltimore. And Overnight, everybody who worked there, their cubicle space had been rearranged and people were out there like tape measuring their cubicles to see if they lost space or gained gained an inch or lost an inch. And obviously I knew that happened. I I have that memory, but I didn't have a journal entry or anything for that. And I remember kind of what one of the, the managers said to me, something to the effect of, you always have a place here to work here. And I was like, geez, that's what I'm afraid of. So I remembered, <laughs> yeah. 
the the gist of the interaction, but that I had to kind of recreate. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one of the only things I, I had to do that for. And I put a little disclaimer at the beginning of the memoir that this is based on partially based on memory and my recollections and so forth. So was that a conscious decision to not include any of the scenes that were a little bit more vague? It was definitely a conscious decision as I'm writing, be specific, add detail, be specific, add detail. It's the little details that make the scene. And there's something interesting about nonfiction writing, which is the more specific you are, the more universal it is. It's very strange. The more vague you are, the less engaging it is to readers. But the more specific you are, were you drinking a Coke? Were you drinking a Pepsi? Were you drinking a beer or did you have a glass of wine? Were you driving a white car or a gray car? Um, you know, the more specific you are with just, and, and there's, you can go too far and you can give too mm-hmm. much detail and just bore the reader. But in painting the scenes, it's those little details. So for example, early on, I talk about one of the fans in the stands had a red Bulls jersey with the number 23, Michael Jordan's number. You know, so instead of just saying there was a fan in the stands wearing a jersey, it's fan in the stands wearing a, a red number 23 Bulls jersey. It's those little details that, that really make, make the scene work. And so when I had a section that was more vague, I really had to focus and, and remember or go back and look at journals or emails and say, what are the details, just a few little details I can add here to, to set the scene. So uh, I'll give you an, an example, this current project I'm working on, the, the retired NBA player, he played on the Bulls in the 90s, won three championships with Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. And I'm writing a, about a particular day. It's in December of 1993. And I went back on weather.com and found the, the weather uh-huh. for, for 7 p.m. Chicago on that day just to throw that detail in there. So it's just those little details yeah. that, that make, make the scene sing. That, yeah, that's amazing. I think you found that perfect balance there because that's mm-hmm. one of the aspects of your book that I liked, the storytelling, like setting the scene just enough to make your imagination work, but not too much where it gets into like a Russian novel and like it's right. just getting too much and, and you actually want some action. Right. Uh, Have you ever read a um, a screenplay, a movie script? No, I've I've read um, a play years ago. Yeah, yeah. So play, movie script, uh, and especially movies these days are so there's so much forward momentum and so much mm-hmm. you know just next plot point, plot point, plot point. But if you look at a movie script, it's very there's a lot of space, and as you can imagine, like a play, it's almost all dialogue, mm-hmm. and so. I wanted to make the reading experience for the book almost effortless, where it just would flow. And so in, in some ways, it's, it is similar to a movie script. It's sort of like half screenplay, half nonfiction narrative, half novel. Yeah. Could you give an example of setting the scene? Sure. In, in my book? I want to give a subject, if that's all right. Yeah. Yeah, go. I forgot to ask this at the beginning. Uh, what kind of coffee do you drink? So I like coffee 
I like about half a glass of milk with half a cup of coffee poured into it with some cinnamon. So I, I like my, my mom always makes fun of me, the amount of milk or cream or half and yeah. half that I put in my cup of coffee. Like I like half coffee, half milk is about what I like. A little bit of cinnamon. Yeah, with, with a touch of cinnamon on top. Yeah, is that daily? Yeah, yeah. Lately, it's been like three cups of coffee a day. Although I drink this, it's a great coffee. It's called, it's made by Four Sigmatic. It's called Mushroom Coffee. Yeah, and Tim Ferriss. Yeah, yeah, Tim <laughs> Ferriss is a fan. I think that's where I first heard it. And what's nice is it has half the caffeine of normal coffee. So oh, okay. I drink three cups of that, you know, maybe from 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. to about noon over, mm-hmm. over the course four or five hours of three cups. But I guess in theory, it's it's really only a cup and a half um, of normal coffee as okay. far as the caffeine level. All right. Yeah, but you yeah. were talking about setting the scene. So do you, do you want to... You want me to set a scene right now? Yeah, about how you drink your coffee. Okay. <laughs> or, or was Fantastic. that too difficult? <laughs> no, no, it's great. So, right, just just what we talked about. I could say, I drink two cups of coffee in the morning. Or I can say, I drink two cups of four sigmatic mushroom coffee. Or I, I drink two cups or three cups of four sigmatic mushroom coffee, um, half a cup of coffee, half a cup of Land Lakes, half and half, right? As you, just as you're listening to those three different descriptions, the more detail, the more the listener or the reader can visualize that in their head. And if I say I drink it in a, in a blue mug now, okay, now I can really visualize it. And it's just those, there's about four or five details, four sigmatic, half and half coffee, half milk or cream. Lando Lakes is the name of the, the mm-hmm. dairy um, company. And then a blue mug, right? Just those details, with a little bit of cinnamon on top, just those details would take up on a page, a short paragraph. But now you set, you know, now you set the team. So, you know, Kiel and Ben walked into the small kitchen off of the dining room. Kiel poured you know, a cup of four sigmatic mushroom coffee with half a cup of milk, uh, half a cup of Land Lakes cream and two shakes of cinnamon on top in a blue mug. Now you can picture it. Yeah. It's funny. This makes me think. So you're writing a memoir. You want these details because you're picturing that person. You're picturing exactly what he's drinking at that exact moment of the story. But now we go to fiction, for example, and I'm not sure if I want that amount of detail mm, when I'm reading fiction. That's a great point. Maybe right. I just want to hear he's drinking a cup of, coffee, cup of coffee and my imagination will make out, is that with cream? Which kind of mug is it? Where is he drinking it? You know, it's a school. I, I think you're right because part of reading fiction, there's an agreement, a connection, a dance between mm-hmm. the author and the reader where the reader is using or the author is asking the reader to use their imagination to fill in some of this world. At the same time, even in fiction, I still think you need one or two details um, because you don't want to be so vague that Mm -hmm. it's just totally amorphous. 
yeah you want a little bit of a of a hint like you want to guide mm-hmm. the reader to think in that direction but don't think mm-hmm. about this exactly mm-hmm. uh-huh. beautiful back to writing what do you think is the biggest lesson that you learned between writing your first book and the second one the, the first book is almost an extended essay uh, it's just kind of my thoughts and there's not really there are no other characters really um, in the second book, it is very, even though it's real life, it's very much, these are the characters. These are, these are the, the, the character traits each, each person has. This is how they, how I interact with them and how they interact with me in the world in the game of basketball. And so even though it's memoir, it is, you're dealing with characters and you're, I'm picking out, I'm juxtaposing things that really happened in a way that hopefully have a storyline, have a through line to them. And so I think the, the, the biggest thing I learned in the second book, and it's, it's an old piece of advice from Hollywood, which is show, don't tell, right? So don't, don't tell the, the viewer it's raining have a shot, you know, with the main character and behind them in the window, you see the rain. Well, it's similar in writing. Don't tell me what happened. Give me a scene. And if you can, give me a scene with dialogue and those little details mm-hmm. so that it, it's like, as the reader, it's like I'm there. And that makes it a more immersive and engaging experience. So that's really what I tried to focus on, or that's a lesson that I learned and what I tried to focus on in the second book. So more storytelling. Yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, and your favorite writing tool, what is that? <laughs> probably coffee. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably coffee. Um, favorite writing tool. Yeah, I think coffee and obviously part of the book is about meditation mm-hmm. and for me, I think for all of us, when we have those moments where we get into flow state yeah, and it's like, we're just in focused on what we're working on and everything else kind of melts away. Meditation is a great tool to sort of prime the pump to get into flow state. So some kind of combination of meditation and coffee are my two favorite wow. tools. All right. So you still meditate daily? Yes. Yep. Is that a at a usual time, like habitual time? Yes. You try to meditate when I first get out of bed and then sometime in the afternoon or evening. Uh, on a good day, I'll meditate 20 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the afternoon. On a great day, I'll meditate 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. And I write about this in the book. Meditation is something I came to. I was about 37, 37 years old, I think, when I first started meditating. And it's the most helpful thing that I've done as an adult. It just helps settle, settle the chemicals in your brain, settle that boiling water mm-hmm. and be more present, be more appreciative, be more empathetic, uh, both to others and to yourself. So it's, it's a wonderful tool and it's totally free and you can do yeah. it anywhere, anytime. Uh-huh. I, my experience with meditation is I've never... Uh, I felt benefits, but I've never been able to do it continuously. Mm. But what I usually experience is I sit down, 
like thoughts start coming you try to push them away you just try to let them let them flow but most is like hmm I should really write about this so I just get up and start mm-hmm. writing about it because I'm scared to forget how do you deal with that yeah sometimes often I'll either keep my phone because I have a, I have a meditation timer meditation mm-hmm. app on my phone or a notepad next to me while yeah. I meditate and the same thing I'll have deep thoughts about something a, a creative project I'm working on I'll make I'll open my eyes pick up my phone or pick up my notepad and make a note put it back down close my eyes again oftentimes I'll just remember something I need to do oh yeah mm-hmm. you need to get eggs from the from the market so I'll open my eyes and make a note because meditation should be a tool that is applicable and practical in real life so if in the moment you're meditating and you remember something you need to do that you had forgotten and if you don't write it down right now or make a note in the, on your to-do list right now that you might forget it again mm-hmm. well then open your eyes and and write it down i mean that med- meditation is a tool and in that moment meditation has helped you remember something that you need to do yeah big myth about meditation busted it's not about mm-hmm. just closing yeah. your eyes and forgetting about the world <laughs> yeah and it's not about pushing back against your thoughts it's just about acknowledging your thoughts being aware of them mm-hmm. and then hopefully at some point your thoughts are like clouds just moving across the sky okay there's a thought about this conversation i had yesterday there's a thought about uh, my parents there's a thought about uh, my partner there's a th- and, and of course you'll interact with those thoughts but the more you meditate, the more they just become like clouds and you're aware of them and then they drift, they drift past. But I think the idea that your mind sort of empties or clears, that's also, um, that's also one of the biggest myths. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, moving into the, the final part of the interview. Mm. You've mentioned quite a lot of writing advice already, but if you had to give a new author first time author, three tips to write and publish their first book, what would they be? Mm, that's a good question. That's a big question too. So with the caveat that this is just my advice, this is maybe a process that works for me and everybody needs to find their own. So I don't want this to be prescriptive. I do feel, and I was an English teacher, high school English teacher for let's see, five, nine years. I was a high school English teacher for nine years. So I felt this as a teacher. I feel this as a writer now. If you work hard on your plan, on your outline before you start writing and you work hard on your editing after you finish writing. So if you really place, put time and effort into the pre-writing process, in the post-writing process, it's really hard to have a bad piece of writing, mm-hmm. right? I think where a lot of first-time authors can get stuck is I'm going to sit down and start writing. Um, and I don't know where I'm going. And the story is just going to tell itself. Now, I know mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, the story will tell you how it wants to be told. But for me, 
it helps to have a plan. And I think for first time writers, it's incredibly helpful to have a plan to know where you're starting, where the middle is and where you're going. Because yeah. otherwise it's really easy to get lost in the forest. So mm -hmm. my advice is spend time and effort on an outline and spend time and effort editing, pre and post writing. If you do those two things, you'll almost certainly have a good piece of writing. Okay, yes, I can't help it, but this reminds me of coaching. You can't mm. just show up and do the practice. You need to prepare mm -hmm. and plan, do the coaching, reflect mm -hmm. on how it went, and they mm -hmm. are all equally as important. Uh, same at writing. 100%, 100%, and as we talked off air a little bit about coaching, I had my practice plans detailed to the minute. Mm -hmm. And then in games, I hardly ever moved from the bench. I hardly ever went into the team huddles. I hardly ever said anything, right? So on in one side, it's incredibly detailed to the minute. And on the other side, it's just hands off, let things happen. Mm -hmm. The coaching's the writing. The match is a published book. Like you don't go in the living room and say like, this is how you need to interpret this line. They're on their own. I love it. Or is that too far-fetched? <laughs> no, no, I love it. I think one thing, um, one thing that can really help creativity is making kind of odd or strange comparisons. So my brother-in-law is a jazz pianist and he's also a big basketball fan. The, mm -hmm. He's a fan of the Boston Celtics. So one day we were talking about different players on the Celtics and which famous jazz performer they would be. Okay. And so my, so Jeremy was like, Oh, what, you know, this person would be miles Davis and this person would be so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And it's it, sometimes if you had a creative impasse doing something like that kind of jogs loose the, the creativity muscle. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great tip. Um, any other writing tips? Because I kind of interrupted after the first one. Mm. No, I think that was it. I think just spend if you're if you're a first time writer, spend time on your outline and spend time on your editing. I so again in my newsletter, I interview authors, and, and the newsletter is benbo.substack.com. And one author I interviewed, he's from R Rwanda and lives uh -huh. in Namibia. And he's now a published author with a New York Times book review. And when I interviewed him, he said, I was a zero in the literary universe. No yeah. one even knew I existed. Uh -huh. and, he, and he went through step by step what he did to get an agent, get a publishing deal, have a published book that's published by a traditional publisher, big publisher worldwide. And one of the key first steps that he did was he wrote short stories and submitted them to journals and he used uh -huh. a, a website called submittable.com. So you can just go on there and find journals that um, you may be interested or that, that your genre may fit or that your writing may fit and did that. So that when it came time to engage with a US publisher, even though he's based in Namibia, he could say, I've published in these seven journals. And for a publisher or for an agent, that makes it seem like, okay, this other people have signed off on this person. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he does exist in the yeah. literary universe. 
So for the publishing side and for the writing side, as you're starting out, maybe rather than doing a 500 page, you know, 100,000 word novel, and then just throwing query letter after query letter, it, it's beneficial. It's probably beneficial to write some short stories, submit those short stories, go through that process. And then obviously your writing will get better because you're doing different pieces of writing. You're getting feedback and slowly you're sort of building a, a wine cellar of, of pieces that you have in various journals. Yeah, that's a great story. So people can find that on your newsletter. Do mm -hmm. you remember which number it is? You can check right now. But so the newsletter is, is benbo.substack.com. And on Mondays, I usually write a post about something, something to do with the writing process. So for mm -hmm. example, this Monday, I posted how to ask for blurbs, right? So you finish your okay. book, you're going to publish, and now you need, you need a couple of blurbs, those little one or two sentence reviews from other authors or well-known mm -hmm. people. Um, so I have a post about that. And then usually I have an interview, a podcast interview on Thursdays. And so that interview that I'm referencing, it's, it's um, episode number 44, podcast episode number 44. And the title is Finding an Agent and a Publishing Deal. The subtitle is author Remy Najamije shares his journey. All right. Super. Um, you mentioned you did not have any more writing tips, but I actually know you do because you shared an essay with me um, a few weeks ago. Mm. Mm -hmm. in which you said that the biggest mistake that you made was your cover design for your first book. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. Oh, I, I have a many, many, many more writing tips. And, and again, I, I share all of this for free. It takes five seconds to sign up on my newsletter, ben, benbow.substack.com. So one of the keys to publishing and to promoting your work and ultimately to that translating into sales and money in your pocket, which that's one of the really interesting things. One of the really cool things about, about writing, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what was just some, a thought in your head translated to words on a screen, translated to actual money in your pocket. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting thing, right? Cool thing. Uh -huh. So part of selling your book is having a good cover design. And a good cover design communicates to the reader a level of professionalism and a level of engagement. Oh, that looks interesting. Let me click on it. And it's not only that you need to have a good or an engaging cover design. It's that you need to have an engaging cover design that looks good as a thumbnail because in this day and age the vast majority of people are going to first encounter your book as a thumbnail click on amazon so the very first thing they're going to see the very first decision a potential buyer of your book is going to make is okay amazon's showing me a whole screen of books in the cozy mystery genre or amazon is showing me a strip of books people who bought this book also bought this book and, and your book is showing up there. So you want your cover design to be eye-catching as a thumbnail, not just as a blown-up life-size cover. 
And then obviously people will click on your cover design, hopefully. And the next thing they're going to do is read the little description. And the first thing that you should have are blurbs. We, I just mentioned that I did a, a post on my newsletter about blurbs. Yeah. So the first thing they're going to see do is see the blurbs. Oh, okay. Um, he's got, you know, a couple people in this genre said this is a good book. Now, the third thing the customer, the potential buyer is going to do is download the free sample. And that's why a copy edit is so important because if you have some grammar mistakes or spelling mistakes, again, it communicates this is not professional. So it's sort of, if, if you think about the journey, it's I'm going to click on the thumbnail. I'm going to read the blurbs and, and the little description. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm going to check the ratings or the, or the reviews. Then I'm going to download the sample. And if all of those things fit, now I'm going to buy this book for $2.99 or $4.99 or $9.99 or what, 99 cents, whatever the price uh -huh. is. Right. That's a good outline of how the buying decision works. And mm -hmm. then one more thing that can influence that, that you also mentioned to me is the category choice, because that can make 100%. a difference between Amazon bestseller and not. Mm -hmm. 100%. So Amazon has probably hundreds of categories. For example, this book, Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey. That I'm going to slot that in the categories of coaching basketball, obviously, mm -hmm. um, sports, sports memoir, yeah, um, travel, because it's a travel memoir also. And then I was looking at the categories the other day. Under travel, they have continent, and then under continent, they have country. So travel memoir, Africa, Namibia. I'll slot it in in the the most niche of those categories, uh -huh. which is Namibia. And then Amazon will automatically populate it in all the parent categories. So, and then there's a way you can check the, the top 100 books, let's say in the coaching basketball category. And so I can just click on the first book and you can check the bestseller rank for that book. And I, I did this the other day. And then you can translate the bestseller rank into how many copies a day does that equal? And I think for the coaching basketball category, it's something like 20 copies a day. So uh -huh. if I, the day that, that, so that my book comes out November 1st, on November 1st, if I sell, let's be on the safe side. If I sell 30 or more copies, let's really be on the safe side, 50. If I sell 50 or more copies of my book on December 1st, it will reach the number one bestseller list on Amazon for coaching basketball for that day. Yeah. Same thing with travel memoir, Namibia, travel memoir, Africa, Namibia. So once you hit the best, once you're an Amazon bestseller, you get that little orange, that orange banner, number yeah. one bestseller. And now you can put on your, you can put that on your book cover yeah. or, you know, put somewhere Amazon bestselling author, etc. Even the book that I, that I wrote beating Vegas, I posted that in very niche categories, uh -huh. something like gambling, sports, basketball, something like that. And it did well in those categories. It actually ended up for a little while in the overall basketball category, which is a huge category with people like Kobe Bryant. I mean, yeah. you know, he's deceased now. He, he wrote a book called Mamba Mentality that's popular. Uh -huh. Kevin Garnett had just released his autobiography. Um, and for a minute, my book 
was above all of those books. The only book I, I got to number three on the basketball mm-hmm. bestseller list. The only two books I couldn't beat. Steph Curry has a children's book. He was number two and pre-orders for John Grisham. John Grisham wrote a sports book about basketball. In fact, a uh-huh. basketball player from Africa. Okay. And the pre-orders for John Grisham, no one can beat John Grisham. Right? <laughs> yeah. so the pre-orders for John Grisham were number one. Steph Curry's children's book about basketball is number two. And then my my book, um, my little super niche ebook was number three. So it's cool. Yeah, it's amazing. So what many people do, because they want that number one bestseller um, banner, they launch mm-hmm. um, their book with huge discounts. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is a financially more reasonable approach to getting that number one bestseller banner. Yeah, I, and I think, you know, a really powerful strategy is to do both, right? To sort of pick your niche categories that your mm-hmm. book honestly fits in and launch week or maybe the day of the, the launch day have a, a significantly discounted price from what it's normally going to be to sort of jumpstart sales. Yeah. And then ultimately what you want is the Amazon algorithm to recommend your book to if, if so again, my book's about coaching basketball. So Phil Jackson, who coached the Bulls and the Lakers, uh-huh. he's written a number of books, um, including a book called 11 Rings, which is a popular basketball book. So ultimately the goal is somebody in Belgium or somebody in London or somebody in New York buys Phil Jackson's book on Amazon. And then Amazon says, okay, people who bought this book also bought these books uh-huh. and your book shows up there. So you want the, you want the Amazon algorithm to do the selling for you, but to kind of kickstart the Amazon algorithm, you do want to have good first week sales. So I think it does make sense to discount your book the first week and uh-huh. then list it at the normal price. Whereas the traditional model was always, you know, you sell a hardcover for 25 bucks yeah. and that, you know, it's, it's out for a year and then you have a paperback. And then maybe two years after that, you have a discounted paperback. Uh-huh. Um, but, but the, in this new world of Amazon Kindle, the Kindle store and self-publishing and so forth, it actually makes sense, I think, to, to do it in reverse, which is to discount your book up front, jumpstart the algorithm, jumpstart your sales, get the number one bestseller banner, and then list it at the normal price and let the algorithm just sell your book indefinitely at the normal price. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's probably something for a much longer debate because I talked to a marketing expert before, um, mm. April Dunford, and she says, mm-hmm. um, first week, like in the first year, she did not discount her book. Like unlike, she says many people discount on her first day, but it doesn't make financial sense because the people that are going to buy your book on the, your book on the first day will probably buy it whatever the price because they are your mm-hmm. biggest fans. So you're actually mm-hmm. selling your book to your biggest fans at a cheaper price like to the people that were going to pay the full price. Is that a, is that a bad idea? I mean, don't you kind of want to, your biggest fans are the ones who are most engaged and you, they're the ones who are going to give you good word of mouth and yeah. sort of sell, sell your book for you. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think it makes sense to have it discounted. Your, your number one fans get to buy it at a discounted price and then they're going to go out and hopefully and recommend it to, to other people. But yeah, yeah, just like with writing, there there are many paths up the mountain. Uh-huh. Right? There's no yeah. there's no one right answer. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I'm aware of your time. So final question. Mm. Yeah. What is your secret? What is my secret? Okay, you go first. I go oh, first. Thinking. No, uh-huh. that's not that's not the way it works. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you got you have to be able to answer any question you ask, right? That's only fair. Uh, well, I've done twenty five of these, and this is the first time um, I've been throwing it back at me. <laughs> uh, okay. It's a rebound. How does it feel? Uh, yeah, <laughs> confronting, difficult. Uh, um, I think the secret for me is just get started. Um, uh, like with the, with this podcast, I was afraid people would not accept. And I just started, reached out to five people, mentioned a few names. Hey, I'm reaching out to those other four people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested, I'd love to talk to you about writing your book. And they all accepted. So mm-hmm. I think it's just get started and don't be afraid. I love that. So yes, one of the secrets is kind of jumping off on that is also people, writers are generally incredibly supportive of each other. Yeah. Just like, you know, you and I connected on Twitter and now we're doing a, an interview. And sometimes before you make that first connection or reach out, you're like, oh, this person's just going to, you know, shut me down or deny me or not respond or so forth. And yeah, if you're reaching out to Stephen King or John Grisham or whoever, you're not going to hear yeah. that most likely. But generally, I have found writers are incredibly willing to connect to share ideas, to share strategies. I mean, that's what coffee and pens is all about. So yes, yeah. one of the secrets is connect. And one of the other secrets is people are generally really happy to connect. Yes, yes. Good conclusion. Um, so mm-hmm. Ben, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, people can find out more about you on your Substack, your newsletter, any other place mm-hmm. uh, people can connect with you. Yeah, so, so again, the newsletter is totally free. Uh, weekly, a Monday post, usually about writing, publishing, editing, promoting, and then a Thursday interview, usually with another author. That's at benbo.substack.com, B-E-N-B-O. And then on Twitter, I'm at B-Guest, um, the, the letter B, G-U-E-S-T. And my book is Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey, available on Amazon as an ebook, as a hardcover, and as a paperback. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Ben on Twitter at BeeGuests or subscribe to his newsletter, benvo.substack.com. If you want more coffee and pens in your life, subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, it's at coffeepens. On Instagram, it's just a bit more complicated. It's at coffee underscore pens. But to keep things simple, we also have a newsletter. You can sign up via coffeeandpens.com slash newsletter. Soon, I'll be sharing some exclusive content in that newsletter. It's about writing, marketing, and publishing. Stay tuned, because you won't want to miss it.